is Pull Yourself Together with E. Shaver Booksellers. Hello, I'm Jessica, a lifelong lover of books, wide-ranging reader, fan of obscure British literature, all things Douglas Adams, long sentences, music biographies, the Oxford comma, always up for travel, except during COVID, and of course, Jane Austen. And I'm Melissa, an eclectic bibliophile and all-around nerd who also loves Jane Austen, comics, and cooking. Together, we run an independent bookstore in Savannah, Georgia. Each episode, we discuss the books we've been reading and recommend. Well, hello there, everyone. Hi. Um, so we're just going to go ahead and get it out in the open and say it's been a while since we've done this. It has. It has been a while. And we, we made an attempt, but um, we were rusty. We needed to... Um, to, yeah, to work on a few things. It was just not good for anyone. <laughs> so we're we're saving you from listening to that and are just recording a new show. Um, even if it did take us another week to get around to doing it, this way. It, but we've been doing things. Yeah, like, we have been doing things. We, we went to market in Atlanta and got all kinds of cool new things for the store, book-related yeah. accessories. Yep, that was um, a whirlwind day of... No windows and shopping spree. <laughs> yes, and sore feet. Yeah. Um, but an excellent dinner at the end of it, it's which true. was a lot of fun. If you're in the Atlanta area, um, Bacchanalia is oh. an amazing, amazing restaurant. Um, it is probably the best meal that I have had in a really long time. So mm-hmm. so definitely check that out. A little shout out to them. <laughs> yes, definitely, because they made, they made the day bearable. It's true. Um, I mean, uh, we also were in Phoenix. Yes. Um, we went to our first live and in-person bookseller conference in over two years. It um, was very exciting. It was Children's Institute, which yeah. is put on by the American Booksellers Association, mm-hmm. specifically for independent booksellers. And um, they really treated us nicely. Yeah, it, it was, was it was educational, but also restful. Um, they built in a lot of breaks and built in a lot of time in the schedule um, to just let us enjoy being around our fellow booksellers mm-hmm. and also let us be away from people if we needed a moment from being overwhelmed at being around <laughs> that many people again. <laughs> because it, it is a skill that you lose if you don't use it. It's true. <laughs> like podcasting. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. So it all comes full circle. <laughs> yes. Um, so we have we have been busy doing book-related things. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also been buying season for us. Yes. So we're now uh, pretty much finished with our fall buying, which is the Christmas season mm-hmm. and also a big publishing time. So. Yeah, lots of great things coming out in the fall. So mm-hmm. lo- looking forward to that. But yes. that takes a lot of... Time and uh, energy yes. to go through all those catalogs. Um, yes, uh, the catalogs are online now, so we're not sitting back with little visors on <laughs> with our paper catalogs. Um, but but it, it still takes a minute, and there's does. that whole screen fatigue situation. <laughs> uh, yes, absolutely. Um, and trying to puzzle out what's going to be the next big, wonderful read yeah. that we want to bring to all of you. Yeah. So. But we've also been reading. We have. We have been reading some things. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, we had to kind of cut back because it's been so long. I, I had to, to go back and look at what I'd been reading. Yeah, we, um, we each um, pared it down to only about four books that mm-hmm. we're going to each talk about. And then we have a couple that we've both read for book clubs that we're just going to discuss quickly. Yes. But, um, well, uh, I, I can jump in if yeah. you want me to. Hit it. Okay. <laughs> So I actually listened to Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell. 
um, which had been very popular and I had been very interested in reading it, but it had just, a great cover. It had a great cover. It had a great everything. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> it was on the Indies next bestseller list for a long time. And I finally got to it by listening to it. And I would recommend listening to it because, um, the person who reads it on Libro FM is, um, really good at what they do. And so if you're not, this is, um, this is Maggie O'Farrell's eighth novel, and it's historical fiction. And um, it's kind of, it is about an unnamed playwright from Stratford on Avon. Hmm, I wonder who it could be. And his wife. Mm-hmm. But it's also about the death of their child, Hamnet. Mm-hmm. Um, it sort of is the story of a parent's worst nightmare and how each of them deal with it and how the family deals with it and what the aftermath is like. Okay. And it's, it's set in Stratford, um, England. The, the boy in question is 11 years old. He's the only son. He has a twin sister. Her name is Judith. And, um, and it begins with him, with his sister becoming ill. And this is one part of the story. It's told in several different narratives. Um, the first narrative is about his sister becoming ill. They're alone in the house, which is unusual because they live in a small area. And he is desperately trying to not only help her, but to find their mother or someone who can help him. Is that narrative told from his perspective or is it told from like a third person perspective? It's told more from his perspective. I mean, it's told from a third person perspective, but it's kind of like in Jane Austen, which we were talking about last night, you understand what his thoughts are. So free indirect speech. Yes. (laughs) It's a new uh, literary term that I've uh, learned from a, a book that we read for our Jane Austen book club. And I'm I'm going to use that in all facets of yes. my being now. Well done. Well done. <laughs> so, um, but you can really like feel his desperation as he's, he's looking. And, um, and I think all of us remember being children and having that when you desperately needed something and you needed help and you couldn't find someone to help you, um, wanting to take care of everything but not knowing how yeah and um so his sister has come down with the bubonic plague the year is 1596 um and it goes from there the second narrative the second timeline and um it is not by any stretch of the imagination a straightforward timeline in this book. Sure. So you jump back and forth between these two narratives. The second narrative um goes back to the beginning of the parents' marriage. Okay. How they meet, her history. In the book it is not Anne Hathaway, who we're familiar with, but the main character is called Agnes, um, or Anna Agnes mm-hmm. and um, O'Farrell used this because um, in Anne Hathaway's father's will, this is how he named her. And so that's where she got the name from. Well, I mean, I feel like in in the 
during that time yeah. period, like spelling, it was was, all, was very loose, like it was fluid. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. Was fluid. The, so, and so um, yeah, just like Hamlet and Hamnet are the same name, mm-hmm. and in this time period, and so the the second the second narrative goes back and tells her history, um, and a little bit of her mother's history, and. Her mother was kind of this wild woman who lived on the edge of the forest and was a healer and then married. They had uh, two children, her brother and herself. Mm -hmm. Um, And she grows up to be kind of very much like her mother. People would often call her a witch. And she was very independent Mm -hmm. and a healer Mm -hmm. and, you know, that kind of woman. One of those women that thinks for themselves? Yes. And so... In the second narrative, um, her father dies. No, her mother dies. Her father eventually does, but her mother dies. Father remarries, and um, and she gets a uh, stepmother that does not really care for her, for her at all mm-hmm. or understand her, mm-hmm. um, and and just generally doesn't like her. Sure. And there's so there's conflict there, mm-hmm. um, and she's looking for a way out. There's this young Latin tutor that is working out one of his father's debts, teaching the boys of the farm, the sub- subsequent boys that the second wife has had. Mm-hmm. And um, they meet up, and they both see a way out of their incredibly abusive lives that they're living. So it's a marriage of convenience. Well, but it's also kind of a marriage of love and passion because they truly understand and respect each other in, okay. this, in this telling of this mm-hmm. story. Um, but it's intermingled with the first narrative popping in and out of mm. it where the child is sick mm-hmm. and desperately looking for someone. Mm. And so it creates this tension and then she breaks it, but then adds with a second tension and then goes back. And it's, it's just beautifully done. Um, Excellent. It really is. And she takes you right to the point where you just can't stand it anymore. And then she goes to the next story and, it's really masterful. Um, and then about halfway in the book, there's like a 10-page little vignette that explains how the plague got to them. Mm. So it goes all that there's a ship and a boy and a flea and a... Rat. <laughs> yeah, and all the things. Raticus Norvegicus. Yes, and it <laughs> traces it all the way back to how it gets to this one little village okay. in England, which is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just, um, it's just such a good book. Like it was a hundred percent where it should have been on that bestseller list for so long. And I can't recommend it enough. If you really are looking for just a heartfelt tale, Mm -hmm. um, ultimately the stories start to intertwine with the death of the child. Um, and then of course, the playwright is away a lot and living most of his life in London. She's living her life in Stratford. She has a bigger house. Um, and well, don't want to give too much I away. Know. <laughs> but ultimately, um, the playwright channels his grief into writing this play called Hamlet. And I'll leave it there because more happens after she discovers this. But that's like, 
that part of the book is, uh, that's, yes. So I don't think I've given too much away because you know, you know that the boy is going to die um, if you know the story of, of Shakespeare and Anne Hathaway at all. Mm-hmm. So, um, but how it all takes place. And then the, the, the love story between the two of them is so good that now I have a hard time watching Shakespeare in Love, which I really love that movie, but I can only think of her at home. Yeah, I mean, I have a hard time with that movie anyway. Like, I like that movie, but I just have to look at it as, like, sort of like the Marvel Cinematic Universe versus the comics. They're two completely different different things, and you just need to understand that going into it and just know that this is fictional and right. just lose but this yourself is when in it. Two of your fictional worlds collide. Yeah, sure. And suddenly you're like, oh. Oh, trust um, me, that I, I have yeah. that moment all the time watching the Marvel movies. <laughs> I'm like, that is not right. Okay, just calm down. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, that is the one. That is the one thing about the book is that um, I have so much more sympathy. And um, yes. I kind of always have sympathy for the wife that's at home with the kids who's being cheated on by their husband. Well, you know, the way that, <laughs> that they sort of portray it in that movie and in, in general in a lot of, of literature um, and fictionalized accounts and even history is that she was much older and that, like, she didn't care. She didn't want him to be there. And this definitely makes a different argument. Hmm. All right. All right. So that's Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell. All right. Well, I am also going to talk about something that is historical fiction, but it's historical fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's um, like an alternate history um, set. It goes back and forth to post-Civil War um, Philadelphia and mm-hmm. then kind of during the Civil War. Um, and it's called The Conductors by Nicole Glover. And it deals with um, a couple named Hetty and Ben. Mm-hmm. And Hetty and Ben are um, escaped enslaved people. Mm-hmm. Um, they are conductors on the Underground Railroad. Um, and traditional wa- railroad? Like, it's a regular railroad? No, no, it's not a traditional railroad. It's okay. the actual Underground Railroad. Okay. Like, well, uh, there's Colson Whitehead's yeah, version yeah, of it. There's, yes. Yes, yeah, this so. is, it, it's the Underground Railroad in the way that we understand the Underground, underground Railroad, Railroad and moving um, enslaved people from place to okay. place. Because um, anytime you say sort of a fantasy or a... Yeah, yeah. no, not an actual railroad. Yes, I just, um, yes. <laughs> yes. I just want to flush that out. Fair yeah. enough. Um, but the different... So the fantasy element in it comes in because they are magic users. Mm-hmm. Um, and Hetty specifically is a very powerful magical magic user. Um, she uses star sigils. Mm-hmm. Um, so she can draw these sigils that um, do different things, and it's based on different constellations. Um, she also is a very talented seamstress, and she will sew... Um, sigils into like the collar of her clothing or the collar of Ben's clothing Mm -hmm. so that if they don't have time to like draw something out, they can just kind of touch in the, and it will work and it will work in the same way. So it saves time. Um, Mm -hmm. So they are now in um, Philadelphia and they solve mysteries Mm -hmm. or, or, 
sort of like sort of supernatural related things in post civil mm-hmm. war Philadelphia. Um, so it's like reconstruction era and, um, the crux of this one, because it's kind of a self-contained mystery story and it's the first, I know there's, so a, I was just going to ask, yeah, it's the first it a in a series. I know there's at least a second book. I don't mm-hmm. know if she continues to, mm-hmm. to go on with it after that. But, um, in this one, um, the body of one of their friends who is also one of the, um, first people they helped um, on the Underground Railroad get out of slavery. Um, he's mm-hmm. he's found murdered and carved into his body is this sigil, which is called the Cursed Sigil. Okay. Um, and so they're trying to figure out who murdered him. And mm-hmm. then other bodies are um, showing, appear- up? showing up. Um, there's like a subplot where Ben is secretly boxing and doesn't tell Hetty that he's doing this. So he's like <laughs> earning money, like all la well, like okay. far and away. <laughs> yeah, but I have a question is how is she not going to figure out? I mean, boxing does leave a few marks. But he, they oh, are friends magic. with people who use magic and are healers. So, oh, okay. so that gotcha. is not a problem. Um, so that it all ends up coming together and it's all intertwined. Um, but it's, it's just like, it's a fun kind of self-contained mystery story. Mm -hmm. I think the magical system is really interesting. Um, there's also sorcery in it and Mm -hmm. wand magic, but it's, the different magics are used by different people. Um, so everybody has different talents or gifts. Yes. And not everyone is a magic user. Right. So you have to be born into it. You can't, learn it yeah and so back when Hetty was enslaved on the plantation that she lived on she had to wear a collar that dampened Mm. her magical abilities and they would do that on anyone who had strong magic use um and it would also like alarm if they were trying to use magic Mm -hmm. it would set off an alarm if they went too far okay so there's uh there's lots of different elements to it um but it's it's just a really intriguing magical system. So okay. I, I was fascinated with that. And I mean, I've read a lot of books where there's a lot of magic systems. Right. And this one I found, I, I thought was very no, well I, done. Yes. Um, we, we, I've had more conversations over the dinner table about different <laughs> systems of magic. Right. And which is acceptable and which isn't with my kids for years and years and years now. Yeah. So. Um, and so the, then there's also kind of a subplot where... Um, Hetty is looking for her sister. Mm-hmm. They escaped together, and in their escape, her sister was lost. And so she's been searching for her sister ever since she's gotten to safety and freedom. And okay, so there, there's that whole element as well. So there's well. another sort of mystery within the mystery. Yeah, and and it's a common story amongst the people who she has been instrumental in helping get to freedom is that mm-hmm. they've all lost touch with people along the way. Like one of their friends had been married mm-hmm. and their first wife has gone missing and well, now they're married again and have a new family. And then the person appears. Up. Well, and, I mean, at that point in time, how would you have possibly known? I mean, there was no 
good way of tracking someone. Exactly. And I, I mean, mean, it was just sending letters to people who might know someone who might know someone. And, and traveling and looking and word and of mouth. waiting and, forever to hear replies to those because right. the mail system was not quick. No, <laughs> no, no, no. We complain now, but really nothing on them. I imagine it took as long for a letter to get there as it does for me to send anything to Canada. Yeah, well, or I mean, just anything going through Jacksonville. <laughs> so there's that. Yes, yeah. um, but it, it's a it's a good um, a good fantasy story. Um, the mystery is interesting. Um, the characters are interesting. So the conductors by Nicole mm-hmm. Glover. Very good. Mm-hmm. Well, I ha- I have a magical book too to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one that I have not quite finished uh, because other things keep jumping in the line. So I'm over halfway through it, and it's really good. It's a great just escape book. It's um, The Thinking Woman's Guide to Real Magic by Emily Croy uh, Barker. Okay. And uh, Melissa actually picked this (laughs) off the shelf for me at Malaprops when we were in Asheville together because it has a cover design very much like The Discovery of Witches. It also has a blurb on the front from Deborah Harkness. And I I was like, well. (laughs) I know. No brainer. Um, I will say it is a completely and utterly different book than A Discovery of Witches. It's much more in the realm of... um, Old school fantasy and okay. world building. I mean, not that the discovery of witches isn't, but it's just a it's a totally different magic system. It's it's a totally different feel for the book. But the I, I, I don't want to give too much of it away, but I'll give you kind of an overview of what happens in it. So uh, the main character is Nora Fisher, and she teaches English at a university that seems to be somewhere around Asheville, interestingly. Okay. And um, she's working on her PhD, and she's, it's, it's a slog for her. Things are not going well. She's had a falling out with her advisor. Um, her boyfriend, Adam, has kind of moved away, and this all happens at the very beginning of the book, um, has moved away to teach at another school. Um, he's coming back to see her. She thinks that they engaged she's excited about seeing him she goes to pick him up at the airport he breaks up with her and then he tells her that he's met someone else and they're getting married whoops so that's not a good time and then he stays in town because his plane doesn't leave for a few days his ticket back so he's staying with her not with her but he's in town (laughs) okay okay and so (laughs) then on top of it she's going to a wedding with a friend and it's a mutual friend and she gets to the party the rehearsal dinner night party and there's adam her boyfriend and now they're trapped in this you know social situation where they can't not be nice to each other (laughs) yeah and it's just um it's it's really miserable for her so She's staying at this cabin, Airbnb, and she sees an old um, copy of Pride and Prejudice, like mm. a mass market. The, sure, yeah. like you do. And she puts it in her back pocket, and she decides to go out for a hike and just read on the mountainside for a while because she is done with what's going on in her life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she, she does that, and she wanders into this beautiful old graveyard that's surrounded by iron, and um, there's a headstone there that has a poem on it and she reads the poem out loud which everyone knows you should not do yeah. in a graveyard nope. 
And then she gets up and she just wanders off and she ends up in this beautiful garden. And she's like, wow, this is really cool. I've kind of lost my way, but... I think you're in the world of fairy at this point. She might have been. So she she ends up in this this world, and there's this beautiful woman standing there. There and, always is. Yeah, she's in the, sitting next to a pool in 1960s glam glory, mm. more or less. And her name's Isla. Mm. And I may mispronounce some of the names because I haven't heard them pronounced in... You know, yeah. it's a fantasy book. But um, so it's just like, oh, no, you have to stay for my party. My party's going to be fabulous, and I have something great for you to wear, and I'll do your makeup. We will have so much fun. Mm. And so so she's like, well, I don't want to go back there. So, yeah, sure, I'll stay. And so Isla, like, does her hair and does her makeup, and all of a sudden she looks like as beautiful as Isla and as glamorous as all the people that start showing up at this party. Tell me she doesn't eat or drink anything at this oh, party. she eats and drinks everything at this no, party. No, no. And <laughs> Isla has a son. Of course she and does. And he's super handsome, and he just, you know, is as sweet and kind and charming as can be. And Isla is all for them getting together and she can't wait to introduce them and he's just going to love her. Mm. And his name is Raslin, I mm-hmm. think is how you pronounce it. It's R-A-C-L-I-N. Mm-hmm. And so they do actually hit it off. And suddenly, like, she just can't even remember where she came from. Yeah, and yeah. she's traveling around with all these beautiful people to Paris and London and... They're having all these every night as a party. And anytime she mentions that she should call her friend or go home, they're all like, oh, no, you're sad. You can't leave us now. There's more to do. Mm. And so she ends up uh, marrying the son. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. <laughs> and um, ultimately, it comes down to, yes, she is living in a complete magically made up world Mm. um the the they're not actually fairies is not what they call them in this book they're called the fainteren f-a-i-t-o-r-e-n and so like they're fey or like the she yeah yeah. (laughs) so um and they're magical creatures of course (laughs) and um anyway so she she um has been chosen to marry him and there's a subplot. Um, they need to reproduce with humans so their people can go on. But they're really not what they look like. Mm-hmm. They're kind of what we would consider pretty scary and grotesque. And yeah, that's yeah. the magic of glamour. Yeah. <laughs> and so, anyway, without giving too much away, she ends up in a completely different parallel world. And ultimately... She strays out of the land one day and um, ends up meeting this, I would say he's a wizard type character and his magic works more like a wizard or a mange. Uh, he's he's or a sorcerer. Mm-hmm. And um, his name, which I also can't pronounce very well. Um, how would you pronounce that with the A? Can you even read it? I have no idea. Okay. <laughs> In my mind, it's something like Ardruriel, maybe. Uh huh. I, I, I'm but not great at fantasy see, names. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So he seems like a pretty curmudgeonly old man, and um, 
ultimately he gets her out of a terrible situation and starts taking all the spells off of her that have been put on her and she starts like her brain starts working again and she realizes kind of what happened to her but there's no way back they have no way for her to get back into her own world and so she just starts living in this world and trying to make the best of it and um and then there's a lot more intrigue that goes on but that's where we are at this point. Okay. Um, ultimately, she it turns out she can perform a little magic, and she starts learning that, and she learns the history of this land and becomes more enmeshed in it. And that's all I'm going to tell you, but there is a second and possibly third book okay. with this. So um, it is a it is a, just a great escapist read. Like if you're sitting on the back porch or at the beach, and it's long, it's... It's it weighs in at about seven hundred plus pages, mm-hmm. um, and but she does it, very good world building, okay. um, and I have thoroughly enjoyed it. And if you're into that kind of fantasy, it's good. It is a interesting magical system. It's not quite as well spelled out mm-hmm. as the one that you were talking about, mm-hmm. but the world makes sense. There are no yeah. big holes in what's going on, so okay. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And you do dip back into, you know everyday human events too okay so yes all right the thinking woman's guide to real magic okay all right so the next one i'm going to talk about is in no way um a fantasy although it's ridiculous um (laughs) so okay like most everyone in the you know pandemic times i um was a fan of binging netflix Things. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that I found on Netflix that fascinated me and like it was basically a train wreck for me. Like I, I was both <laughs> disgusted with myself for watching it, but also like could not look away from it. It was oh, inventing Anna. Well, and you got me on that train, too. Yeah. And it, so it, it was fascinating. It was fascinating and infuriating. It um, is fascinating. So if you're not familiar with what what inventing Anna is. Um, in 2017, there was... There's a girl. There's a girl. With a um, dream. Yes. Um, she Her name was Anna Delvey, mm-hmm. and she came on the scene in New York City and by all accounts is a German heiress. Mm-hmm. Um, she becomes very, like, very socialite, um, knows all the right people, um, is... Insinuates herself into all the right situations. Yes. In sort of a fake-it-till-you-make-it way, I would almost say. Yeah, so she um, decides that she wants to create... Um, her foundation, the Anna Delvey Foundation, which is basically going to be a social club like Soho Club. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's found this... For ultra-rich and artists. Yes. So she's found this um, property that mm-hmm. she wants to lease to do it. Um, she has a super uh, ridiculously expensive attorney working for her. Um, and, and how she like gets to this place is amazing manages to get two different banks to 
get very close to giving her $45 million Um, based on nothing. Yeah. Her saying that she has a trust fund in Europe Mm -hmm. and any look, as you may guess, long story short, she's a con artist Mm -hmm. and this is just a long game con that she's been running. Um, and eventually goes to, um, she eventually goes to trial is found guilty of several different crimes, went to jail only stayed in jail for about two years, and then she was released and sent back to Germany. Then she came back to the U.S. and was arrested again for um, overstaying her visa. Yeah. And then they were going to send her back to Germany, but she has decided instead of going back to Germany, she would just rather stay in an ICE facility locked up. So that's where she is currently, is in detention at an ICE facility for overstaying her visa. And one of the things that I found, just gonna a little segue that I found really unusual about this was when she was actually convicted of these crimes. She was kind of happy that they believed that she had almost pulled this off. Yeah, like she, she did, wasn't a joke. She wanted people to think she was legit, and she didn't want people to think that she was a fake or that she didn't like she didn't want people to think that she wasn't that she wasn't smart or that it's so it's a very weird story bizarre yeah but anyway so the the tv show like the mini series that's Mm -hmm. on netflix um is told from the it's told based on the life rights of Anna Delvey, who sold those to Netflix, as well as a reporter Mm -hmm. who did a story in the New York Post um, about about her. And so actually at the trial, there were people from Netflix in the the room when this was all happening. Uh, So it is almost sympathetic to Anna. It's interesting, like, the way that it's told. But one of the people that's involved in this story um, is a woman named Rachel Deloach Williams. Mm -hmm. And Rachel was, or it may still be, I think still is, a photo editor at Vanity Fair. Um, And she ended up becoming friends with Anna and kind of got pulled into this whole thing. And she has written a book called My Friend Anna, which is her side of the story that she's involved in Because this. she doesn't come out very well in the Netflix series. No, she is very, um, very sort of villainized in the Netflix series. And I was curious after watching it, mm-hmm. because at the end it has like, this was based on this story by this person. And this person has also written a book. And mm-hmm. I was like, okay, well I'm curious to hear her side of it. Yeah. So her, her part in this tale um, is that she, she ha- strikes up a friendship with Anna. They do a bunch of stuff together and, Anna is at a point where she needs to leave the country yeah. because she is her visa is about to expire again. So she decides that she's well, and her whole world is falling apart too, to some degree. Well, but Rachel has yeah. no idea. Right. Of that. Rachel doesn't know. About so that. 
Anna needs to leave the country to uh, because her visa is about to expire. So she decides that she wants to go to Morocco. So this whole trip to Morocco um, is going to be at like they're going to stay at this crazy expensive five star resort. Um, she is going to pay for everybody to go. She decides she wants to bring a videographer with her to film. Um, the beginning of everything. Yeah, the, to make to film like sort of a puff piece about her to use as publicity for what the Anna Delvey Foundation is going to be about. Mm-hmm. So she invites Rachel to come with her. Rachel puts her in touch with a friend of hers who is a videographer mm-hmm. and gets him involved in it. And then they also take with them um, their friend. A- a mutual friend named Casey who is like a personal trainer. So the first inkling that things are not great is that they're supposed to be leaving that evening for Morocco and Anna still hasn't bought plane tickets. Yeah. So she asked Rachel to go ahead and take care of the tickets because there's some problem with her credit card and you know, her dad keeps always, yeah, her dad has turned off her allowance and blah, 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 blah. She always has an excuse for it. So Rachel pays for the place for the tickets. They go to Morocco. They're at this exclusive resort where they have this private, uh, bungalow situation where they've got butlers and everything. Like, I mean, thousands of dollars. Mm -hmm. Like this is like an insane place. Um, and they're there for like a day and a half, two days. And they're at dinner one night and, the manager of the hotel mm-hmm. pulls Anna to the side to speak to her. And it comes out that the credit card that she has used to hold, uh, to pay for the room or mm-hmm. like the, the bungalow situation, you know, obviously won't go through. Right. Because she has no money. Right. Um, <laughs> so she's saying that, Oh, the, she'll get a wire transfer, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So they let her go. The next day, the money still hasn't come through, and they're starting to. And these people aren't messing around. Yeah, these like, are these are not people. It, it's Morocco. Yeah, this is not f- fluffy, kind concierge at the hotel that's being nice. These guys are serious. Yeah. So they finally demand a working credit card to put the the hotel room on, and so Rachel gives her personal card for them to keep on file. And like with the promise that this is not going to actually be charged to her, this is just going to be held until Mm -hmm. Anna gets her situation figured out. Right. So, well, (laughs) so Anna never gets her situation figured out and ends up, they end up charging charges on both Rachel's personal card and her corporate card from Vanity Fair, totaling almost $70,000. And so once they get back into the States and kind of getting out of Morocco is a little bit of a harrowing experience. Um, But once they get back to the States, um, she starts asking Anna for repayment for this Mm -hmm. money because one, she's well over what she can afford personally, but she's also got money on her corporate card, which is not a good thing. No, she's Um, could get fired for that. Yeah, she's worried she's going to lose her job. So 
this goes on for several months. Like she details like text exchanges mm-hmm. between them where she's like, okay, you said you were going to wire me the money. And Anna keeps saying, oh yeah, I've wired it. Like here's the confirmation number. It. Yeah. And yeah. it's just this long, long way of basically not yep. paying her. Um, so Rachel uh, goes to the DA and is one of the people that's instrumental in getting the case brought against her and actually testifies at the trial. Um, but, but, but there's a big, but here. Yeah. So there, so this all sounds very sympathetic, right? Mm -hmm. However, (laughs) (laughs) um, there are a few things that are interesting about the story and, and I can almost sort of see why she's a little villainous, Villainized, villainized yeah. in in the miniseries. So one, in the book, she's very careful to kind of document all of these occasions where she is paid for things in their mm-hmm. relationship because she doesn't want people thinking she's taken advantage of it. Because that's one of the things that they brought up in the trials. Like, yep. well, you, you did were, all this stuff. Yeah, you were friends with her, and she paid for this, and she would pay for you to guys to go out to dinner, and she paid for this personal trainer and mm-hmm. all of this stuff. So she's very she. And it, it's very obvious what she's mm-hmm. doing in the book. But then, um, it kind of, like, she has, she's acting like it's this, um, like, for a normal person to have $70,000 put on your credit card without a way to pay it. Right. It, it would be a very stressful experience, and this would be, like, life-altering if you don't get this money. However, yes, she had a family friend who offered her a loan mm-hmm. to pay off all of the. So she she really wasn't necessarily. It wasn't going to tank her forever. No, it wasn't the perilous situation she makes it out to be. And she also um, was in no danger of losing her job. Like there's no discussion of people because one of the people she tells about it up front initially when it happens is the woman who's ultimately her boss at Vanity Fair. Like, right. so they know that this has happened also. Yes. In addition to that, in addition to that, she has put in fraud claims with both her personal American express card and her corporate American express card. And now it does go back and forth a lot with American express with trying to get this taken care of. Ultimately, they reversed all of the charges. So she was not On liable for, any, for of any of it. Also, <laughs> um, and they do portray this in the miniseries. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time that Anna is arrested, she's in a rehab facility because she is working the system mm-hmm. and realizes that if she's in a rehab facility or hospitalized, that she can't be... Deported. Uh, deported from because she's overstayed her visa yet again. Um, so Rachel contacts her and says, I'm going to be in California. We should get together while I'm in town. Mm-hmm. Gets uh, Anna to leave the rehab. Because she has to physically she leave, leave the rehab. Yeah, they can't from- come and get her. But the minute she steps foot off the property, the cops are there to arrest her because Rachel has set up this event. Right. But she doesn't say that in her book, but that's Mm -hmm. actually what happened. So, Oh, there's not (laughs) a lot of sympathy for anybody involved in this. Really? No. I mean, it's like, yes, she did 
play you. And yes, there was what you were a victim in a con, but yes. However, (laughs) um, it's not, you made your money back. Yeah. Well, and more, more More so because she got a book deal. She, Mm -hmm. you know, so anyway, it's, it's a very convoluted situation. Nobody comes off great in it. No, I'm just like fascinated with how it actually happened. Why nobody could see through this? Yeah, it's amazing it, to me. Yeah, it's just it, it's it's fascinating. Yes. But anyway, terrible so people have... doing terrible things. <laughs> <laughs> but with style. But with style. But with style. Well, speaking of that, mm. I might talk about the unbearable lightness of being <laughs> by Milan Kundera. Milan Kundera, <laughs> who I must. It's like. It's like penguins. <laughs> yes. I can't say his name properly. <laughs> um, I've even got it phonetically out in front of myself, and I don't trust myself <laughs> to do it. So um, so we read this for our Tequila Mockingbird book group, and Melissa couldn't be there for that one. So um, Melissa has not actually read it. So I'm just going to... It's it's a complicated and complex book. It's not a quick discussion. So I'm just going to say it is in the canon it's definitely something that you should read um, if you have the chance. It takes place in Prague in the late 60s and early 70s. Um, it's really about the artistic and intellectual life of Czech society at that time. And in 1968, the invasion of, of Prague by um, what's now the former Soviet Union, but apparently they're, they're at it again, um, Trying. And so the one thing about it that was very interesting was to read about the Russians coming in to this city and taking it over in very much the same way they've been kind of doing that recently mm-hmm. um, in the same part of the world. Mm-hmm. So um, it's a philosophical novel and it's sort of challenging the idea of eternal recurrence, which is a, a Nietzsche's idea that everything has already happened and will happen again the same way. Like Mm. we're in this eternal recurrence. Whatever you do, it's not new and it's going to happen again and again and again and again and again. No, that Nietzsche, he's a ton of fun. (laughs) (laughs) But so this one is instead the idea that you have one life, period. And you can either, each life is unique and... um, and it happens only once. So what you get is what you get, and you need to make the most of what you have. And like l- YOLO, <laughs> <laughs> like a Czechoslovakian version of YOLO. <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. Um, I am going to tell you that Tomas, the main character, is a player. Well, yeah, um, and players got to play. That's, that's a word on the street. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, and, and lightness in the book equals freedom, more or less. And the heaviness is being weighted down with earthly concerns and matters. So Tomas and one of the other main characters, Sabina, kind of represent lightness in this, and they live these very sort of don't-want-to-be-weighted-down artistic and intellectual lifestyles where they don't really commit to anyone. Mm-hmm. I mean... Ultimately, Tomas ends up marrying Teresa. Teresa represents sort of that weight and heaviness of life. And that's what you're looking for from a, a life partner. <laughs> well, I mean, he's about to flirt. I mean, he, he is 
He likes the ladies a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Like a lot, a lot. Mm -hmm. Like it's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So the question is really kind of, is commitment even possible or is it desirable? And in the end, the book answers that question that, yes, it is both possible and ultimately desirable. Okay. And it's, it's not quick but it is it is <laughs> uh, yeah it is a pretty straightforward narrative though okay. so um i highly recommend it but it's it's not going to be your weekend read like you need to take a minute with this book sure yes. well um in the vein of big questions mm-hmm. um i read and, and this is not out yet um it comes out um in the fall um it's called Dinosaurs, and it's the newest book by Lydia Millet, yes. um, who you may know from uh, the Children's Bible. That was her most recent book, mm-hmm. and that one was a, a very big seller. Um, Which is a weird story. But it is a weird story. Too. Well, and I, I, I will admit I have not read the Children's Bible, um, and this is the only book that I've read by her, but... It was also kind of a weird story, mm-hmm. um, but also not a weird story. It's it's a very interesting book because it's it's like two hundred and fifty ish pages, mm-hmm. but it's the way the print is on the page, like it's very small, mm-hmm. like so it's not really two hundred and fifty pages because it's it, yeah you know what I mean, um, and it moves very like I read it very quickly in spite of the fact that nothing large happens in it plot wise like it is not a book where a ton happens but it is asking large questions and Mm -hmm. like ultimately it's looking at can someone be good is like goodness attainable that that, that, this is a similar question Yeah, yeah yeah um so and I will say, I think one of the reasons that I actually very much enjoyed it more than I probably would have otherwise is because we had just been in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. Um, like, so I started reading it when we got home and it happens in Phoenix, Arizona. And the the narrative is also interspersed with these um, descriptions of nature and things that are going on in the natural world that don't mm-hmm. really have a ton to do with the plot of the book, but it's just the way that she's written the story. And I could very much visualize the things that she was mm-hmm. talking about, which I would not have had a clue because I've never really been in that kind of landscape. Yeah, like yeah. this would have been completely foreign to me, but I could see it all very vividly. So if you have been in Arizona, mm-hmm. this will make a ton of sense. <laughs> um, but anyway, so it's about this man who's named Gil. And at the beginning of the book, he has decided to move from Brooklyn Mm -hmm. to Phoenix. And that's a... It's a... Yeah, it's a big change. Mm -hmm. And you get more about Gil's backstory, but at the beginning of the book, you don't really know what his deal is. You just know that he has money, Mm -hmm. um, but he's decided that when he moves, he wants it to be he doesn't want it to be easy. So he doesn't want to just like fly to Phoenix and have Mm -hmm. his belongings moved for him. He doesn't want to pack it all in a U-Haul and drive. He has his belongings moved, but he walks from Brooklyn to Phoenix. 
There's not a real straightforward way to do that. No, there isn't. And so that that's and that's not even a large part of the book. It's like yeah. he just decides he's doing this and then he's in Phoenix. Okay. Um so he the house that he's bought is next door to a house that the whole wall that faces his house on his neighbor's house is mm-hmm. made of glass. So he can see into his neighbor's house. And apparently at the time that it was built, the glass was supposed to be tinted in a way that made mm-hmm. it like, so you couldn't see in from the outside, but you could see out. But the tinting has faded because of the sun in Arizona. Yeah. So now it's basically just like a fish tank situation on his neighbor's house. So he's trying not to be like the peeping Tom that's like sitting next door, like mm-hmm. looking at what's happening in these people's houses. But you can't help but see some things. Um, So the family that lives next door has just moved there as well. And it's a husband and wife and they have a teenage daughter who's about 15. And then they have a son who is like eight, if I remember correctly, Mm -hmm. he's young. Um, And because they've moved in the summer, the kids haven't really made friends yet because they haven't been to school. Right. And so, the mother is a um, therapist, mm-hmm. and she brings over like a casserole or whatever to his house to introduce herself, and then um, suggests to him that he come and play catch with their son because her husband's away on business all the time, and she's trying her she's trying to get her practice up mm-hmm. and running, and the kid doesn't have any friends, and so he's really bored, and so and Gil doesn't know anyone. So he makes friends with the son and then sort of just becomes like a secondary part of their family. Um, Mm -hmm. And he also, because he has a lot of money, doesn't need to work because his theory is he doesn't want to take jobs away from people who actually need to work. Totally get that. Um, So he volunteers. And so Mm -hmm. he does a lot of volunteer work and he starts volunteering at a women's shelter um, for women who have been in domestic violence situations. Um, And so he becomes, like, he's part of their friendly male program. Mm -hmm. So he's basically a guy that is trustworthy that can go with these women on, like, shopping trips or to do things um, just there in case their abuser violates the restraining order or, you know, so he's actually kind of dangerous work. It is, but Mm -hmm. he's, he's good at it. Mm -hmm. I mean, he just has kind of, he's just a kind of a soothing person Mm -hmm. who, who's ultimately trying to do as much good in the world as he can. And he, I mean, he just does these sort of little things Mm -hmm. that are good but he's constantly being let down by the people in his life that he's sort of put up on pedestals and it's sort of the it's just well that's just life yeah exactly Mm -hmm. and i mean it's that's just basically what the book is it's just like kind of a small snippet into this guy's life and sort of what's going on with the people in it. So you kind of wander in and then you wander out and that's it. And and like I said, nothing big happens. It's Mm -hmm. not like a (laughs) plot-driven, like... Thriller. It's just a very small kind of character sketch, almost. Which is what I'm going to talk about next. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it, um, it's good and it's well written. Like she writes a good story. Um, so if you're just looking for something that's kind of quiet, 
This and the nature parts of it are very, very beautiful. Like mm-hmm. the description of the nature. She's a beautiful writer. Her yeah. books are just. I mean, they're for a sp- uh, specific. You you have to like a specific. Yeah, it's kind just of book. Kind of quietly literary. Yeah, li- <laughs> quiet literary fiction. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Well, excellent. Yep. So it's called Dinosaurs. Um, it comes I, out. I think it comes out in October. I okay. I should have looked up the exact date, but I fail. I, <laughs> so I am going to talk next about a plot-driven murder mystery mm-hmm. <laughs> called The Thursday Murder Club. We read it for our uh, mystery book group. It's by Richard Osman. And um, I listened to it, which I highly recommend for this book <laughs> because the accents are wonderful. The narrator is great. And at the end of it, there is about a 45-minute interview with him, which is delightful. With the narrator or the author? Um, with the author. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. No, that that's was unclear. Was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, it's just a really fun book. Um, the action of this takes place in a retirement community. Which it's, is known for its action. Yes, well, it's an upscale <laughs> retirement community. I don't think that makes a difference generally. <laughs> Called Cooper's Chase. And, uh, and the main character is Elizabeth, who is fascinating. What had Elizabeth done in her past? Hmm, hard to say. <laughs> She's spent time in the Czech Republic as a bartender. She's traveled the world. Mm. She's totally MI5. Yeah, probably. But <laughs> or um, Bond. Jane Bond. Jane Bond, <laughs> yes. Or uh, and she's not a money penny because she's actually out yeah, there. Yeah, she's in the so, field. So she's retired mm-hmm. with her uh, third husband, Stephen, who's mm. a sweetie, but he's got a touch of the dementia starting. But mm. she's very sweetly trying to keep him focused because she doesn't want to lose him into the medical community um, yet. She's not ready for that yet. And then there's Joyce, and Joyce is wonderful. Joyce keeps a diary throughout it, so Joyce actually gives you insight into a lot of the mundane details that are going on um, in the narration. So um, Joyce is a former nurse, and she's asked, she's recruited by Elizabeth to join the Thursday Murder Club. Mm. Also in the Thursday Murder Club is Ibrahim. He's a retired psychiatrist. And Ron Ritchie, who is um, a former union activist. And he's just a great sort of get-in-there-blue-collar kind of guy. Um, very smart. And um, his son is actually a famous boxer. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. and he plays into the story as well. Okay. And there's not too much you want to say in a mystery because I don't want to spoil it. Because it's a mystery and because that's, it's not a mystery. that's part of the fun. But I will say there are, um, there are two murders in the book. The two people who get murdered are both, um, people that nobody's that sad that they got murdered. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure someone is. Maybe I mean you know, (laughs) but um, but it is a delightful cast of characters. Takes place in this idyllic, seemingly idyllic village. Um, Everyone is um, interesting and smart, and but they do they are aware of where they are at their time of life. So things are okay at Cooper's Chase, but the guy who owns it is looking 
to expand because he wants to make even more money. And Cooper's Chase is situated in a former abbey mm-hmm. where actual nuns lived until about 10 years ago before it was bought by these people. And there's a beautiful walled graveyard. And he wants to dig it up, move all the nuns that date back into the 1800s to somewhere else and build more condominiums there. I mean, they're never going to know. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a group of people who are upset about it. and um, Of course there are. <laughs> yes. And, um, yeah, and it kind of goes from there. And then there, so there's the Thursday Murder Club where they try to solve cold cases mainly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they bring in a policewoman. Her name is Donna DeFerdis. And she's come down from London. She had some stuff going on in London that she was not happy about, and she decided to come to this small village. And basically, she's the new kid, and they're sending her out to do the lock your windows, don't leave your purse in your car or your handbag or Mm -hmm. um, kind of talks. And all she wants to do is solve serial killer murders. Sure. So she meets up with the crew from the Thursday Murder Club, and they, she's hanging with the bad kids. She is hanging with like they're drinking a bottle of wine at lunch and mm. all the stuff. And so she really, um, but she enjoys them. And so they kind of bring her into their little circle. And she thinks it's kind of fun and games until some actual murders start happening and they want to be involved. Okay. And she's like, mm, <laughs> I don't know how I feel about this. So she brings in her. Her boss, and there's a long list of names. So I'm um, Chris Hudson, and he's kind of an overweight, uh, no longer happily married dude um, in middle age, um, and he, he he is he ends up being manipulated into promoting her into murder ev- investigation through mm-hmm. through through the Thursday Murder Club and the way they pull some strings, which I won't go into because I don't want to ruin that. Um, But there's this great scene in the book where he's invited over and they are completely, all these old people that have acted like idiots, like one of them played the dementia card. He's like, oh, I just can't remember what happened. I wonder, you look so much like my grandson. And... um, (laughs) When he was perfectly, you know, had his wits about him. So anyway, they they invite him over, and then they they act like they're giving him the seat of honor, but they make him terribly uncomfortable. Like, they sit him on this tiny couch, and then two people sit on either side of him, and they give him a cup of tea, and then they give him, like, cake on the saucer, and he can't move, and he doesn't know what to do with it, and the tea is scaldingly hot, and the... um, and then they finally offer him this chair to the side to make him comfortable, and then he starts to warm up and spill the beans because he thinks they, you know, respect him so much. And so it is really just a fun book of manners. There is a very good mystery in the book. Um, I did not initially figure out who did it at all. It, it, I had to wait to the end just like everybody else. You think you're going to get the answer, and you're like, oh, it's totally that guy. And then you're like, oh, no, <laughs> nope. Not him. So <laughs> he sends out a lot of red herrings. Um, mm-hmm. And, yeah, again, it's hard. 
because I just don't want to say too much about it, but this is a charming and delightful murder mystery. Mm-hmm. I would call it a cozy, um, and I think it qualifies as a cozy, but it's a very smart cozy. Okay. Like, it's not... And there is murder, and... Murder happens in cozy mysteries. Yeah. Usually it's just, like, with a pie or something. No, <laughs> or these people like, are... Or, like, there's quilts involved. No, or... <laughs> they're the, one of the murders, and I'm... I, no, I can't tell you yeah, how they happen. Yeah, no, no, no. Nope, but Joke. there are... There are two murders, and both of them are devious and brutal. Okay. Yes, and um, these are not doddering o- old people, although they, they really do. There are some very touching moments in it where they sort of talk about their mortality, and one of the f- their friends who has been in a coma for a long time passes away during the book, and, and so it doesn't make light of where they are in life, Okay. which I also appreciate. Yeah. Okay. All right, so the last thing that I have is actually a middle grade book. Mm-hmm. Um, in It is a creepy middle grade book. Oh, like, yes. creepy in, like, the way Coraline is creepy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called The Clackety, and it's by Laura Senf. Um, I'm going to jump in and say I think it's a little creepier than Coraline. E- e- well, sure, it is. It is. <laughs> it, it's really just creepy because of part of the setting. Mm-hmm. Um But it's about this girl named Evie, um, and she is about 12 years old. She is living with her aunt Desdemona, and she's living with her aunt because both of her parents have been killed in a fire, although she doesn't seem to think that her parents are dead, and there's some sort of questions about that, Mm -hmm. which... uh, is left open-ended. Um, so I think there's the possibility that there might be, she's thinking mm-hmm. more books in, involving these characters. Um, but they live in a place called Blight Harbor, which is the <laughs> seventh most. Sounds charming. Yes. It's the seventh most haunted city in the U S Savannah being the first. I, that doesn't say, but it, yeah. they're very proud of seven. Okay. Um, and Desdemona is the local expert in all things paranormal. Ah. And she writes an advice column. That's almost like dear Abby, but it's mm-hmm. like, how do I deal with this ghost in my attic? We're not getting along. Uh, like, so, it's uh, advice dealing with mm-hmm. paranormal things, but she also does other things in the community. Um, so she has gone to investigate a weird paranormal occurrence and she's left Evie at home, but then she's gone for a really long time. So mm-hmm. Evie goes looking for her and the place that she's been investigating is the old abandoned abattoir, which is a slaughterhouse. And, you know, who doesn't love oh. a children's book that happens in an abandoned slaughterhouse? Um, oh. Anyway, so she, yeah. so Evie arrives at the slaughterhouse. She sees her aunt briefly, and then her aunt disappears. Like, is puff of smoke, or she just can't find her? She's just gone. Okay. Um, and a shadow being comes out Mm -hmm. and his name is the clackety Mm -hmm. and he makes a deal with Evie that he will help her get her aunt back in exchange. Evie has to help him 
get the ghost of a serial killer who was that problematic in seem... blight. No, it doesn't seem like a middle grade book, but or it... an equal exchange. Well, sure, but <laughs> the, he wants the ghost of this serial killer who who was problematic in Blight Harbor about a mm-hmm. hundred years ago. Okay. So Evie agrees to this because she wants her aunt back because Mm -hmm. she doesn't have anyone else. And um, she ends up going into this like ghost world or like a different sort of world. And so the task is that she has to get through seven different houses. Okay. And each of the houses present a different challenge to her. In try- and the ghost of the serial killer is out there lurking, trying to get her. Mm-hmm. And the clackety is not 100% on the up and up and is sort of mm-hmm. playing both sides. So he's not really an, a reliable companion. Okay. Um, but she does have the, like, the, it's a really weird thing. Like, there were um, swallows painted on the mm-hmm. inside of the abattoir mm-hmm. and one of them ends up almost like a tattoo on her but he can move around and he's sort of her companion and he helps her oh, when it's kind of nice it's really neat yeah. um but it is it is like a supernatural sort of adventure there um there are weird things that she encounters in the alternate world um but yeah very mm-hmm. Very Coraline-y, very... Does it have some humor in it, I hope? Um, a little, not a ton. It was, mm-hmm. I, it was less lighthearted than I thought it was going mm-hmm. to be. Um, so I would say it's older middle grade readers. This is not for your, you know, eight-year-old. Um, but, yeah. but, yeah. Yeah. Well, very good. Mm-hmm. So it's so, so it's the Clackety by Laura Senf. Just real briefly, um, a couple of books that Jessica and I read for the Jane Austen book club that we have mm-hmm. at the store. The first one is called Dancing with Mr. Darcy, um, and it is a collection of short stories that was edited by Sarah Waters. Um, and the short stories are all part of a competition that was done by Chawton House, which mm-hmm. is um, Jane Austen's home. And the premise of the contest was that the short stories had to be connected to Jane Austen, either Jane Austen being a part of them, a connection to Chawton House, or a connection to one of her books. Right, And the connections in some of them are very tenuous at best. Yeah, so I would say... It- most people met the criteria. A few of them were really skirting the edge of it. Yeah, there were a couple that were big stretches for for there to be a connection. Um, But it was, they were interesting and they were quick. Yeah, they were like 10 pages long. Like it was a very, they were very short stories, mm -hmm. but they're set up like Sarah Waters does an introduction where she talks about the criteria that she was looking for for them 
to in judging these stories. Right. And I think it was interesting to kind of look at those stories through the lens that she says she was looking at them through. And the first three stories in the book, the first one is the winner. Right. And then the next two are like the runners up. And I think that she was right. Like, no, I, I agree. Yeah. yeah. I liked, and I especially liked, um, the first story is, um, a fun little story about... It's almost sort of like a defending your life sort story, of yeah. story. So Jane is uh, taken across the river. Um, sticks, I think. Yeah. And, it, um, yeah. and she is then judged by the villains, the villainesses in her novels. So Mrs. Norris. Yeah. Um, she, it's basically... The idea is that she's been horrible to older women in her books. Like right. she has not painted a good picture of, of older women. Yeah. That they were either mean or, um, inca- ridiculous, ridiculous or incapacitated, yeah. um, by laudlum. Yeah. <laughs> so, so anyway, it was, it's, it's interesting, and I think mm-hmm. all of our complaint was that it wasn't long enough. Like I know. that we wanted more of I it because it was an interesting story. story. Yeah. And then there were a couple in there that, while I don't think they were the best for this competition, but mm-hmm. they were really interesting stories. That I I like the story. I just didn't like them uh, as part in, of this, right? So if so, you yeah. if you like short stories, um, or if you just want to kind of dip into something that's Jane Austen related that isn't your typical, um, like, yeah, it's a, it's a fun read. It's yeah. especially good if you, you know, or just want to read something before you go to bed or yeah. Y- y- yes. Yeah. But there, there's are some actually very good short stories in there. Mm-hmm. So it's called dancing with Mr. Darcy. Um, and it's, uh, edited by Sarah waters. Yes. And then the last thing <laughs> is the one that we discussed at our last Jane Austen book club meeting and which was last night. So, so yes. it's called the genius of Jane Austen by Paula Byrne. And the, I picked it to discuss <laughs> and I will say that I felt misled by the the cover. image on the cover mm-hmm. and then sort of like what the book was blurbed as because it's it, it it makes it seem like it's going to be more a pop culture sort of um, fun. explaining fun look at how Jane Austen's works have translated into the stage and film right. is kind of what we thought we were getting into well and what how her her personal love Mm -hmm. of theater has influenced her books and how um that led them to be right ripe for adaptations there you go perfect however (laughs) um it was a very dense slog of an academic read and not even great academia. Like right. it, it was as though, well, I, and now normally we don't really, if we, if we don't love a book, we don't talk about it that much. Um, so I, I, I tend to be gentle, but this one just was not, it was like you ordered one thing for dinner and something else showed up and, you weren't prepared for that. Yeah, and and that's not to say that there were not things. There were good takeaways. Yeah, there in were it. things in the book that were very interesting. She did make some interesting points. Um, she spent a lot of time looking at Mansfield <laughs> Park, which yes. is not my favorite Jane Austen. However, <laughs> um, she did look 
at the novel as framed by the play that's in it, Lover's mm-hmm. Vows, and really, really expanded the view of that play throughout the whole novel, which I found incredibly interesting. No, that was um, very interesting. So there were parts of it that were very interesting. Yeah. Um, once you got past the first two chapters or so, it picked up a bit. I the first four chapters. Okay. But it, it picked up a bit after <laughs> that. And there were some interesting observations about Sense and Sensibility. And then... Um, the, actually, I think the best chapter was mm-hmm. the, the last chapter where she was actually discussing screen adaptations of it, there was some fascinating nuggets of history in there that I didn't know about. Like, um, for example, A.A. A. Milne yes. of, of the Winnie the Pooh fame mm-hmm. um, actually wrote a screen adaptation or a, like a stage adaptation of Pride and Prejudice around the same time, like a, a year or two earlier than like the Laurence Olivier really awful film movie. version of yes. it. And there was another stage production of it in the States, which is what that screenplay is based off of. Mm -hmm. It's not based off of A.A. Milne's. And his actually was a successful stage production, and then it went on to be a successful radio drama a couple of times. And now I really want to find that. um, Because she pulls out a scene in there that I just thought was brilliant that is actually Jane and Mr. Bingley talking and sort of flirting with each other, which you don't see in like Pride and Prejudice. Like having a real discussion yeah, where it, you get to witness it. It's very cute. And mm-hmm. like Bingley's trying to be very smooth and it's just, it's very cute. Um, and then I didn't know either that Aldous Huxley, Huxley who wrote mm-hmm. Brave New World, is the one that actually wrote the screenplay for the Laurence Olivier which version. Which is bizarre. It's, <laughs> it is incredibly bizarre. bizarre. And then like... They initially wanted Clark Gable to play oh, Mr. Darcy. And then they want Lawrence Olivier, once he got the part, wanted Vivian Lee to play Elizabeth. And she would have been a fabulous Elizabeth. However, he was having an affair with her in real life, even though he was married to someone else, and the studio didn't want any of that scandal. In the film, to the film, yes. So, so that actually was quite fascinating. Um, so, but I think that's what we thought the whole book was going to be yeah was more more a pop culture sort of history less an academic history, history. um and and uh, we're all for a good academic history yeah um it was just the bait and switch that was <laughs> it was well and it, the way it was cobbled together was um it seemed like it was a series of individual papers that, that were then put together but not edited well together. So there was a lot of, like, I think she actually used the same sentences a couple. There was a lot of, like, really driving it home. Yeah. And then this happened. Oh, and then this happened. Oh, and then this happened. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yes. So if you're, if you're, if you are interested in, like, history of theater in, Great Britain in the late 1700s. Early 1700s, too. too. Yeah, yeah, I mean, she she digs deep. So if that is... If you're a theater buff and, like, and mm-hmm. seriously want to dig into some theatrical history, this might be a good one for you. Um, yes. It, it just it's, wasn't it, what what we thought it was going to be. Yes, yes. But we did have a lively and good discussion. Mm-hmm. It did prompt so, a good discussion. Um, so this did. is the, the Genius of Jane Austen by Paula Byrne. And I think uh, that's all we have for you. That's all we have for you. Yeah.
Hope you all are well and read all the books. All of them. Everyone. Bye. Bye.